Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil Huber. Today is episode number 106. John and I are joined by special guest Brent Hull today to talk about woodworking, historic houses, renovations, and more. So I hope you enjoy today's show. I want to let you know today's episode is brought to you by Woodcraft Supply. Since 1928, Woodcraft has been providing woodworkers with the best tools and supplies. To get a free catalog, visit woodcraft.com slash shopnotes or visit one of their 75 stores nationwide. Woodcraft, helping you make wood work. All right, Brent, welcome to the Shop Notes podcast. Hi, how are you? Good. Now, we had you in town here to do an episode with the TV show, uh, but in this format, I wanted to just get to know you a little bit more and have you talk a little bit about the work that you do. So, Thanks. Yeah, no, excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, I started my career in Boston. I'm from Texas. I went to a school called the North Bennett Street School. North Bennett Street is a, uh, it was a two-year, North Bennett Street's a high-end trade school. There is a uh, violin making, uh, Harvard and Yale went to North Bennett Street, start a book binding program to uh, restore historic books. They're having to send their books back to Europe. So they have that kind of, uh, you know, uh, training that they, they're best known for their traditional furniture making Chippendale and Hipple white furniture. Uh, the idea being, if you can build the old stuff, you can build anything. Uh, so they have a two year hands-on preservation program where literally the first thing we learned to do there was take old hand planes and get them working again. Uh, we, you know, it's a museum quality historic preservation we're learning how things were built 250 years ago. We're using hand tools to build sash and doors and, and other architectural elements. So I went back to Texas. I started my business in my brother's garage, and we really do two things today. We're contractors, general contractors. We restore houses, build new houses, all things grounded in a historic sense. And then we also have a millwork shop, and we do architectural millwork. Uh, historic preservation. We do a lot of courthouse and depot restorations where we are looking at historic millwork and then, you know, remaking it, copying it exactly, using old growth timbers, um, you know, and and building it the way it used to be built. So, uh, you know, my business is now kind of these two parts, uh, all still based around historical, uh, you know, based in history and based in historic preservation and, and historic detailing. So can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the projects that you've done or have going on currently? Yeah. So we are, we've got a courthouse right now. We started in Mason County, uh, which is south of us about three hours. It's a 1908 courthouse that burnt down. So we are having to build the windows, the doors, the the, the courtroom furniture, uh, all the floors, everything basically in wood we're restoring on that courthouse. And so we actually have to use longleaf pine. Longleaf pine was the kind of wood of choice in Texas uh, and in the South during that period of time when we still had virgin forests. So uh, we actually have to buy salvaged lumber that came out of an historic building to restore uh, and rebuild everything. So that's going to be really fun. It's going to take us over a year to do. Uh, we're doing a ranch house for a client where we are kind of in building a brand new ranch, uh, but it's going to have a barn. It's going to have a, a main house and some outbuildings. Uh, so we're trying to 
make this barn ranch project look like it's 100, 150 years old. So there's there there's an example of kind of two projects we're working on uh, where we're infusing history or copying history. And then, you know, we'll do, you know, we'll build historic mantles, just a bit of federal mantle for a couple in, you know, New Hampshire. Um, and then we're restoring houses uh, in Fort Worth. Most of our general contracting work is in Tarrant County and kind of greater Fort Worth, do a little bit in Dallas. Um, but yeah, no, so it, we've got a, you know, 25,000 square foot shop uh, and we are manufacturing and building things there all the time. There's, you know, 30 guys down there uh, working. So, um, you know, two pieces that examples of stuff we're doing. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges in being able to make a connection be or do you have customers that are already making a deep dive into historical re reproduction or historical influenced work versus uh, just tear it out, and make something new? So <laughs> it's a good question, it, you know, and, and I, I, I have a YouTube channel as well. And, and a lot of my short videos, I just did a video on uh, why we shouldn't use shoe mold and people will, will say to me, you know, well, you're, you're talking about a level of precision or level of building that, you know, people don't go after today. And I'm like, well, that's the point guys. We're, 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 we're trying to raise the bar. We're trying to improve our craftsmanship and improve the quality of the things that we're doing, you know, just so it raises the, the, the level of construction. Right. And, uh, so I'm finding that, uh, we are the challenge being is that we are always educating, uh, new people that work for me, always educating our clients, explaining to them why we want to build at a precision that we won't use shoe mold, shoe mold being something that's a kind of a lazy man's tool to hide gaps. Um, let's build in a way so there are no gaps is, is the point of the video. And so we are constantly in, in, in this day and age, um, I often talked about, we've lost the art of building because I was trained, you know, how things were built 250 years ago. And when I was at North Bennett street, we were restoring a timber frame barn or we were building sash or, or we were, you know, hand building things. And of course you drive by the new developments where everything's nail guns and thrown together and kind of a assembled houses, right? Things aren't crafted anymore. So the juxtaposition between those two worlds is what I'm still fighting, right? It's still the, it's still, you know, a challenge to educate people. And now I'm in my 30th year in business and I still run up against trying to get people to understand, no, 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 guys, we're not where we used to be. We, we used to do, you know, this and we've kind of fallen off. Let's build like this again. So, you know, I, I'm sure you have the same challenges, right? I mean, you guys are, are, are building historically inspired and historically, you know, infused pieces that, you know, we're not building Ikea furniture, right? You're, you're not just going to bolt it together, right? You're actually going to use joinery. And so anyway, that, that is a challenge for us of educating everybody to, you know, and that goes to cost, right? Because people will say, you know, well, we can't afford that. Well, if you explain to your customer why you're doing that, look, I want to spend a little bit more time on the floors and I actually going to scribe the base to the floor so that it, so it actually is really tight. It's going to take me a little bit longer but it's really going to be look beautiful. I guarantee you eight out of 10 customers will understand and will either say, yes, do it. Uh, or 
gosh, I'd love to do that, but I just can't quite afford it. I'm going to have you back later in phase two or something, right? But it, it is about money. It is about, you know, making money. But I think that education piece is really important. So you were talking about the shoe molding. Is that a relatively new invention that uh, that's been brought about to hide or just do things faster, I guess, that you don't have to work to precision. And yeah, if you go, because back, I never really thought about that. Yeah. If you go back to like Georgian federal era, there was certainly no shoe mold. Um, you'll, you will find in some of the historic catalogs, uh, a shoe mold, uh, that shows up, I don't know, as a 10% thing. Um, uh, it is, uh, shown in catalogs of the period. It's not like it, it never shows up. But if you look at historic properties and you look at, you know, how things are used, shoe mold is not used the way it was was back then. And it, the other thing that's hard to figure out is, you know, when was that shoe mold added, right? You know, because those sand and floor people will come along and they'll, they'll nick your base with their little sander and they'll want to hide it with shoe mold and take care of everything, right? And so, uh, you know, was is that 150 year old house? Was that shoe mold there 150 years ago? Was that there 20 years ago when they redid the floors? And so, um, it 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 isn't it is an historical thing. It doesn't really get the term shoe mold um, until like the 1950s. So, it, it's certainly something that wasn't practiced a lot historically. Sure. And then, do you uh, when you're doing these uh, restorations, do you still use? Uh, you know, you're talking about nail guns and stuff. Do you still use, you know, modern fasteners or is it like a lot of hand nailing or, yeah. or, or what? Yeah, what's no, that's a good there? question. We are, uh, in one of my millwork books, it, it, it describes that, uh, we want to use machines. Uh, we want to use machines, but use hands as much as possible. That was like in a 1920s millwork catalog. And so realizing that, you know, machinery in woodworking, right? And even, you know, power saws and things on a job site goes back to the 1920s. And, you know, the millwork shop that we have today, I was telling Phil earlier, you know, everything that was in a millwork shop in the 1890s is in our shop, except maybe the CNC. And so they had duplicarvers, they had, you know, all these things that you, well, they didn't have that, but yeah, they actually did. So to answer your question, uh, no, we're not hand nailing. We are, we are still trying to be as fast and efficient as possible matching the past. So while we'll use the same wood, we'll take and make our own knives to match the historic profiles. Um, we are not, you know, hand nailing, uh, we're not putting oil varnishes on it. You know, we're using modern finishes and things like that. Um, most people, right, if you look at the sphere of things, the things that we were trained to do were museum quality, kind of that's that, you know, 1% because those are museum houses where they have to co copy it exactly. Most of our clients want the, I don't know, uh, 10 to 30%. They they want the the story. They want the authenticity, but they also want to, you know, use a microwave, right? And so they want to be able to use modern appliances. And so... When we're doing a kitchen, kitchen historically was a servant's area, you know, painted cabinets. There was very rarely stained gray cabinets in the kitchen. So we're trying to, you know, find the blend there of where that meets. But what we don't want is we don't want our clients to be walking through an historic house and then walk into a brand new, you know, Ikea or just some new kitchen that's off the shelf. We really do want to, you know, 
you know, match the other millwork that's in the house, match the other architectural details so that it, you know, is seamless in its design and how it comes together. I know one of the things we were talking about on the show was uh, you have an extensive collection of old millwork catalogs. How did you, how did you latch onto those? Yeah, that's a good question. When I left North Bennett Street and uh, was leaving the Northeast, we had, we had been working on, you know, Georgian Federal and Greek Revival period houses, really, really nothing after 1850 for sure. Um, and so when I come back to Texas, our housing stock, right, we don't have any Georgian federal houses. Uh, we have some Victorian. And so the housing stock in Fort Worth, Texas is 1890, 1880, uh, in, you know, in forward. And so I had to change my focus. And so I ended up uh, finding, you know, obviously studying, you know, arts and crafts and Gustav Stickley, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Green and Green, all the you know uh, mid-century or early-century architects and designers and building styles. I went to an architectural salvage yard in Fort Worth, a place called Old Home Supply. There's a guy who who uh, Ralph Waterson had, you know, started this business because he was sick of throwing out these great doors and great hardware, and he couldn't do it. So he actually started collecting these things, keeping it in a warehouse, and eventually turned it into an architectural salvage yard. I said to him, I said, hey, Ralph, if I'm a carpenter in 1920, you know, what do I order from? I mean, what, what is what is the, you know, what is the, where's the order sheet? What was that? Like? And he goes, oh, you, you do this book. And he pulled a book, a hardbound book off the shelf. And it was one of my millwork catalogs, the, the 1927, that universal one that we talked about on the show. And um, I mean, the, the pictures and the and the uh, the things that are in there not only are beautifully displayed, right? Their their salesmanship was really high, but it also was filled with awesome stuff that you know I just loved. And so I said, well, are there there must be more of these. <laughs> and so it started a long search for me on eBay with book dealers, uh, going to salvage yards of finding historic millwork catalogs. And what I found was that that whole history of millwork starts in. 1870, 1880. So after the Civil War, Dubuque, we're in Des Moines. Dubuque was a you know uh, mecca for millwork shops, and um, this whole area of Iowa. You don't really think of Iowa as a as a mecca for woodworking, but it really was in the 1890s, 1880s, and into the early early 20th century. So uh, a lot of these millwork catalogs are from Clinton, Dubuque, uh, Des Moines. You know, and, and so. Uh, that's where this industry grew up. It was called the National Sash Door and Blinds Manufacturer Northwest, which, of course, this is not the Northwest anymore. Um, and so I started collecting these books. I now have, I think, over 300 from pamphlets to hardbound books. They're hardbound books from the 19, 1880s into the 1930s. So the Great Depression really kicked the millwork industry in the butt. Uh had a tough time going out of the, the Great Depression and a lot of the things closed down there. But that period of millwork catalogs and millwork, they're beautiful. Um, they're filled with awesome stuff. So my, I wrote a book called Historic Millwork, which chronicles how those moldings and millwork changes from the late Victorian period, heavily ornamented, all that crazy stuff into the 1930s and 40s. And so it gets Victorian arts and crafts and then period revival millwork and they're beautiful to look at. 
I'm going to send Phil a couple and, uh, um, they're awesome. I, I have I have duplicates. I continue to collect them. Um, they're just wonderful pieces of history. Yeah, it's funny that you're talking about these uh, millwork catalogs and collecting them. I was just having a discussion with my younger kids the other day, talking about the J.C. Penney catalog or Sears and Roebuck catalog. And they had no idea what I was talking about. And I was like, imagine if Amazon.com printed out its website into a book. And bound it that's what it's like so if we have any you know young kids listening to this it's like a website but a book the, i, I just a did thing. a talk uh called buildings and brew and i studied the arts and crafts period and and one of the my talking points was kit houses and sears was in the kit house business from i think 1908 to about 1940 and one of the things they were trying to do by selling kit houses was actually sell building materials and they actually, there's a Montgomery Ward's building material catalog and a Sears building material catalog. So you're exactly right. They, uh, they did do that. And they actually tried to get into the house business. They didn't do it very successfully. Um, 29 and 30 were like their biggest years. They told us uh, over those 30 years, they sold a total of, I think, 70,000 houses. Still a lot of houses. But there's been books written about uh, that whole kit house era. It's really fascinating. And so you're exactly right. The... Uh, Anyway, I was, I was studying all that history of the Montgomery Wards and Sears catalogs, and that was how people understood things, right? I mean, uh, that was a great, uh, interesting, fascinating time. So what are some of the things, you know, if we translate some of what you do into somebody who's uh, a woodworker, and what we found is that a lot of woodworkers are passionate home fixer-uppers and remodelers, what are the things that you see when you walk into a house, regardless of its age, um, that you think could help a woodworker? Well, one of the first things I remember learning at North Bennett Street was dating a house. And I had uh, our instructor would take us to an old house and go, how old is it? And so, you know, we were looking at it like, what are we supposed to be looking at? And we would, you know, we would say this house was, you know, from the 1850s, but it had been recited in the 1960s. And uh, it, it, was, it was not easy to tell. Well, he would pick apart all these different things. Look at that siding underneath the vinyl siding that's ripped away. That's the original siding. You can tell because you can still see the nails where there's. And so he would take us through all these different parts and pieces of an historic house. And it trained my mind to uh, date everything. And I was telling Phil on the show, we, we would uh, take moldings off the wall, take things off the wall and know whether it had been pit sawn, uh, rotary or science sawn or, you know, how it came out of a mill historically to date it. We would look at nails. You know, nails are a great uh, dating tool because you have forged nails up until about 1820. Then you have cut nails, two different areas of cut nails. And then you have wire nails in the 1890s. And so it be you begin to start dating things like that. And I say all that because whether it's smoke mirrors, conversation pits, hand scraped floors, right, recently, faux finishes, everything dates itself. And so I have told people that I like can stick my hand in the past, you know, grab whatever molding and pull it out and go, yeah, that's Victorian. Well, how, how would you know? Well, because it has these shapes, it has this detail. There's a story, there's a narrative to all of these different pieces. And so what I would say, the first thing 
that someone needs to walk in is is understand uh, you know historic styles and historic precedent and kind of the different eras of what's going on because what you don't want to do is walk into an arts and crafts house and they have you know clamshell moldings from the 60s or 70s and go oh well that's original molding right because then you're chasing after something that has been messed up and so uh, understanding that the history understanding the narrative I was just explaining this arts and crafts talk that. There is a, a design philosophy that the, things used to be built with a design philosophy. In other words, the arts and crafts was a rejection of Victorian architecture, that over-ornamentation, too much. Uh, they talk about things being cheap, uh, cheaply made, cheaply built, and it was a rejection of that. And so they automatically go to this very uh, flat, clean, stained gray, let the beauty of the wood come through, uh, any uh, ornamentation will be functional. You know, it's just the through mortise and tenon with the peg is an honest joint. And so uh, there is a philosophy. And so once you understand that philosophy, right, it's very easy to put things back, right? So you're not going to put a, you know, Victorian kitchen in an arts and crafts house. It wouldn't make sense. You're, you're like, this doesn't fit. And so I think that whole philosophy of a house works up until probably the ranch period. And then after that, with McMansions in the 80s or whatever, you, wherever you want to go, houses are assembled, okay? Houses are go pick your brick, go pick your windows, go pick your hardware, and, and the builder will put it together. And there isn't a philosophy driving that style. And so um, the first thing I would say is understand the story of your house, the narrative, and you can begin to start putting things back together uh, the way they need to be. Yeah, that's interesting. With There's just... Uh having to investigate beyond what you just walk in and, and see to house because it's, you know, changes over the decades, you know, people put carpet over wood floors or change trim or, you know, different things that you would go in and, and kind of investigate the, the unseen things. So that's really cool. So what if you had, say, uh, you know, like we were talking about this uh, post-war ranch house that is kind of of no style and no period to a certain extent. Can you create a narrative and a story for a house like that, or does that just look like it's tacked on? <laughs> uh, that is a really good question. I, uh, you know, my house is a 1962 ranch, and not a good one. <laughs> um, in that, it's a mix of different styles. There's some traditional elements. There's a steel window next to a, you know, a solid wood, you know, trying to traditional pane window. Um, it's kind of a mess. Uh, and yet, okay, there are still um, elements of that house that are of the ranch and do tell that story. For instance, it's all eight foot ceilings, right? Um, the, it's, 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 which is consistent throughout the house. We've still got the original parquet floors. There are elements of that house that are, you know, part of that story. Uh, we don't have any avocado, you know, appliances anymore. You guys remember those from growing mm -hmm. up. But the uh, uh, that was a very popular color for those of you who don't know. Uh, when when I was growing up in the '70s, and uh, you know, so you know, even being able to pick out and I I jokingly mentioned the conversation pits was a was a popular thing. And I remember touring houses with my dad. And there was a hole in the ground in the middle of the slab floor. And I go, what's that? And he go, dad, my dad goes, that's the coolest thing. That's a conversation pit. <laughs> I was like, what? And so I think a lot of those have been filled in now. But there is even, uh, 
the quick answer is it's really hard. Okay. It, it, it's hard to, uh, do things that, you know, contribute to that narrative. Uh, because quite frankly, a clamshell molding is a, is an ugly molding, right? It, it is, there's, there's no distinction to it. You know, it, 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 it speaks to that, you know, modern aesthetic where everything should be slim and clean and no ornamentation and the clamshell molding has no ornamentation. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a balancing act. The, the, when we bought the house, Someone had taken out the holocore doors and put in six panel doors. Well, a six panel door is a very traditional door. It doesn't belong in a ranch style house. Um, but I'm also not going to take out a, you know, $300 door and put a $80 holocore door back in to be, you know, architecturally pure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you see me struggling around with this answer. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I, it, it's, it's hard. Um, and I'm not sure what the right answer is then because what, what happens is if you end up like going to the tile store, let's say today, and you know, there's a selection of tiles that are very popular, most likely white, right? Everything's clean and white these days, um, that you're gonna go, we're gonna go back in 10 years and look at that, that bathroom and go, oh yeah, they did this 10 years ago because those finishes on the you know, plumbing fixtures, the, 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 the finish on the tile, the subway tile probably, right? We're all very trendy right now, but they're not timeless. And what you're trying to do is really you're trying to be timeless on this thing. And with the ranch style, 70s, 80s, 90s house, it's, it, those aren't timeless houses. What do you pick up on per mm -hmm. your question, right? Uh, it's hard. So we're not going to go back to the wood paneling of the 70s and bright oranges you know, and avocados? When that's, or... when that's done well, I think it's really awesome. But uh, yeah. oftentimes it's not. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, that cheap wood paneling, the faux wood paneling, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's not a great look. Yeah, or golden oak and brass of the of the nineteen nineties and yes, you know, exactly all those eras. So yeah, I mean maybe that comes back in style at some point. Maybe. You know, someday, you know, maybe someday we look at that and go, "Wasn't that cool?" <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I think of that with John because he just recently sold a house and bought a new house, and uh, oh, yeah. the house he was in, you were in there what eighteen years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, early 60s house four level split and kind of redid everything in that 18 years and so it's updated to probably early 2000s styles i'd you know try to go with little arts and crafts kind of timeless motif but yeah. it's got stainless steel appliances and it's like how long before my kids look back and at, at as i look at the the avocado appliances that yeah you know i saw growing up before that's not cool and now everything's shiplap and modern farmhouse and it's like you know how long before that's just like looked at like the the wood paneling of the 70s and so yeah, there it's, it's just a, interesting uh, there is i think there is a uh history does repeat itself one of the if you look at and you guys can tell me whether this rings true or not um you know the the mcmansion in my mind is a little bit like the victorian house uh a little bit over the top, right? A little bit, you know, all the, you know, some of the Queen Anne houses, I mean, you can't stand in front of them and tell them what style they are because there's turrets and there's, you know, uh, ornamentation and there's all this detailing. And what happened after Victorian era was you ended up with the arts and crafts era, which is a rejection, rejection of all that Victorian ornamentation. I would say that the cottage movement, right, uh, is a rejection of the McMansion. And so I was fascinated to, to learn that 
Dwell magazine and Real Simple magazine. I don't know if you guys remember those magazines. They came out in 2000, right? The McMansion era ends in the 18, uh, I mean, 1980s, 1990s. Um, and so I think we, you know, th I think there's a parallel there in that we were rejecting that over ornamentation. We want something simple. So what's next? <laughs> I'm not sure, but the, uh, uh, I don't know if we're ever going to like the bright brass and, uh, and, uh, again, but maybe we will. Well, I, I think it's kind of interesting because you were talking a little bit about that in some of your videos online where there's kind of these ages as you were discussing some historic home styles where you had like the original and then you had like a revival and then you have these re reinterpretations and then even rejection, so to speak, or a reaction to something and how that subtly shifts the way we look at and live in our houses. Yeah, I find that uh, if you look historically at house styles, they're they're either changed by a change of taste, right, which is what that Victorian arts and crafts thing reflects, or it's a change in technology. And I think that the, you know, Victorian era and the Queen Anne house, okay, even the, the even the McMansion in some respect is a uh, showing off, right? It is a look what we can do. Look, look, look what these woodworking machines enable us to do and have these things that were always unaffordable, all of a sudden very affordable. So there was a technological change that brought about uh, um, a, a stylistic change. Most times I'm finding that stylistic changes happen because of taste, right? The Georgian became the federal, um, uh, you know, as change in taste as they discovered more about ancient Rome and, and, and it's Italy, the Greek revival, as we learned about the Greek society, as our world expanded, these, t these tastes changed. But I think it's technology or taste. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what happens after this current era because we've got, you know, the strong, white, clean, boxy houses, uh, very few moldings. Um, you know, they, I, I go, I was in a house in California, uh, barely had a base mold, no crown, no, no, no door casing, right. As a woodworker, I'm like, ah, you know, you know, it, it's hard to go into those houses, but I think there, there there's a pendulum that's going to, that's swung too far. And there's, there's going to be a, there's going to be a coming back where people are like, Gosh, every room looks the same, right? You know, every room is an empty box. Uh, there's no, there's no, nothing on the windows, and um, there's not a human scale to those houses either. And so, there is going to be a change. I just don't know, you know, yeah. what it'll end up in. Like how, yeah. How do you predict what what drives that, and how do you predict what's coming next? Is, that's yeah. the that's the million sure. dollar question. <laughs> so, because I was thinking of that with uh, like I mentioned earlier, I've uh, had. Our first house was a craftsman bungalow from the early 20s. And one thing that I noticed in it was how even within a house, there is a way of distinguishing different parts of the house based on its, its trim. Because we had the, the living room and the dining room were kind of the public areas of the house and had it was all oak, everything, you know, glass cabinets and all that sort of stuff. And then as you moved into the kitchen, all the trim work was painted, and in the the back bedroom, the uh, the moldings and casework had a family resemblance to the stuff in the living room and dining room, but it was a little simpler, dialed back, was pine and painted, and the master bedroom was oak again. So I just thought that that was kind of 
interesting way of, uh, you know, accomplishing some of that same stuff without necessarily having the whole house looking identical. The other uh, interesting that reminds me of that is, uh, you know, that used to happen in historic houses is, is there used to be a, even in a builder uh, entry level house, you know, there was three quarter inch trim by five inches wide. I mean, there was big trim on just a working man's house. Whereas today, the entry level house of a production home, I mean, you're, one, your trim isn't wood, right? It's, it's, it's most likely plastic or MDF or something, but uh, there's just so little of it. And that whole thing, I believe, uh, stops. That the way we used to build versus the way we build today stops with Levittown, okay? And so Levitt is, if you're familiar with William Levitt, so William Levitt was a uh, house builder in the 1930s. He ends up getting a big government contract for a Virginia shipyard and kind of learns how to build a new way. And he, you know, comes back to New York and starts building rent houses. So in 19, uh, what did it been 46, the war ended. So by 48, 49, he's building rent houses in New York and he opens up uh, this deal. And remember the average house before then in the twenties was probably 1400 square feet. He's building 600 and 800 square foot houses, cookie cutters, all they're, they're all looking the same. And uh, the houses just sell like hotcakes. They're just, they're just, he starts production building. You know, he's building thousands and thousands of houses a year. A big production builder in the twenties would have been 300 houses a year. You know, he's building 10,000. And so he taught a generation of builders how to build cheap and fast and not how to craft a house. And I think that as a woodworker and as a, a guy who loves, you know, old houses and things like that, that's kind of where the beginning of the end is. Um, because, you know, the 50s or 60s are not terrible, but, you know, the 1970s, that could be the worst housing year as far as design goes ever. Um, you know, they're just, they don't know what they want to be. They're just, they're, you know, they're terrible. And so it leads into the McMansion era. There are some positive things that are happening today, but uh, I don't know if any of that rings true for you guys, but uh, it's just, I think that the learning how to production build changed housing. Well, I think like you said earlier that we were talking about, there was a time when you had builders that were, I mean, they were certainly getting materials and supplies that were mass produced, but they were still uh, composing a house, so to speak, whereas now it's, uh, you are just basically assembling it. It's an erector set or an Lego set that you are just creating. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's hard. If you guys read the book factory, man, you guys know that book. Um, this lady chronicles, uh, um, uh, factory built furniture. So, in North Carolina, and she, I think Broyhill is the company she, she goes after or, or, or describes. And basically she says, you know, the best furniture is being made up in Michigan. Um, and, and North Carolina became a kind of a uh, secondary market to the Michigan stuff, making things a little bit cheaper. The Colonial Revival era, that's just when they exploded. Um, I think Thomasville's there, Broyhill. And she chronicles that time until they started go taking things over to uh, Vietnam and China and, and making things in, in over there. And this company's battle to stay 
in the business. And to him describing that she was describing all these companies that are leaving that take their manufacturing overseas. And at first, they're they're competitive. And and then the, the, the imports come in and they can't be competitive. So they actually switch from solid wood furniture to MDF furniture. And they describe this process. It's fascinating because you're you're in the boardroom listening to these decisions of how they stay productive and how they stay profitable. Um, but it's kind of what what's happened. You guys do a lot of furniture on your show. And so you, I think you would appreciate, you know, what happened? Why, why do you go to a store today and it's just so cheap and and if if it gets wet it falls apart right and it's just um the beauty of the things you guys are building the solid wood you know lasts for generations kind is kind of a lost art and and just people aren't doing it anymore i'm sure that's why people love your show and want to build those things again i think everybody wants that and we don't get it and uh anyway it's, it, it was if you ever wondered how we ended up with you know pictures of you know oak on mdf right not even oak on mdf pictures of oak on mdf you know that's that's how we got there i was wondering too about uh you know the the blessings and curses of different things and you know now we have access to so many options you know that were kind of buried by like you were saying earlier of tile choices and paint colors and molding profiles or lack of profiles or whatever that it that it's tough to establish a style for a house and that they all end up being just kind of an agglomeration of a variety of things yeah and uh i'm sure you guys read the book or know of it the paradox of choice this guy wrote this book and you know he, he starts the book describing how he went to go buy a pair of jeans at the store and you know he realizes that it isn't just you know buy a pair of jeans there's stonewashed jeans there's boot cut jeans there's slim fit jeans there's you know all these things he ended up leaving the store because he couldn't make a decision um and they they've done studies since then i think there's one on jam where they were basically had all of these jams on a table where there's pear jam and apricot and pear and plum and all these different things like 25 selections and people couldn't make a choice and then they had another table where there was four selections. You know, there was raspberry, blueberry, you know, whatever. And people could make a choice when there was, you know, when it, I think the magic number is four or five that you have more than that and people can't choose. Well, if you've ever been to a hardware store and, you know, try to go pick out hardware, or try to go pick out tile. I mean, you're looking at this wall of selections. I mean, you know. I feel defeated. I know what I'm looking for. And I feel defeated going there and trying to, to pick something because it's the paradox of choice. You just you there's so much out there. And unless you are going after this design philosophy, I explain it to a client. I go, we're trying to build you a, a Pennsylvania farmhouse, right? That would have been built in the 1820s. OK, so there's no oil rub bronze. There's no nickel. There's no you know, it's either iron or unlacquered brass. That's what we're going for. When you give them that kind of design choice and 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 put them in that frame of mind, they can, you know, all of a sudden you see that wall much more clearly and you go, okay, let's look at that, right? And 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 you're not overwhelmed. But if you don't have that and most people don't have that frame of mind, you will get lost and your house will get assembled, right? Because the other thing that happens is if you are, if you don't have a philosophy, what ends up driving the decision? Cost, 
right? And so then you go, well, what's in budget? Well, here's my budget. I've got, you know, $3 a piece to, to pick this out. Okay, that wipes out half this wall. And all of a sudden, you have an easier way of making a decision. But it's, 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 there's a lot of messed up things as far as trying to build something that makes sense today. Um, it's hard. Yeah, it is hard because you have, you know, a thousand choices and then you pick something out and, uh, you know, you have all the time and money and invested in that. And it's like, what if you made the wrong choice and you have to live with it and you hate it forever? And no doubt it just, you know, it's tough. The, so. uh, I, I was reading a book called The uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, um, and it's, it's all about fast food um, and they talk about slow food. And, and I feel like what we're trying to do, what you guys are trying to do is teach, you know, slow woodworking, mm -hmm. you know, where, where you're actually building things real again. Um, it, it's, it's like you, you can't drive, you know, get in a road trip and drive across country. It's very hard to eat well, right? Because most things are, you know, mass produced, you know, there's Twinkies that are, you know, meant to live on the shelf for six months or whatever without, you know, decaying. Um, our, we end up putting products in our house, like AZEC, I hope they're not a sponsor, um, <laughs> is drives me crazy. It's basically plastic wood, it's PVC wood. Um, but I fear that the reason AZEC has made it on the market is because uh, people say, well, wood rots. Uh, you know, we can't try, wood's no good anymore, wood rots, uh, we've got to use plastic when what's really happening is we've forgotten how to pitch the sill of a window so that water runs off of it and we've forgotten how to build so we are introducing these plastics into our thing because we've forgotten how to pitch the sill of a window and so it is it is learning you know how to eat well again right with our houses and learning how to you know build well and the lost art of building right so do you find bright spots in where you're in, in your circles? <laughs> I sound pretty pessimistic, don't I? Um, yeah, in fact, I think there's a number of really positive trends, believe it or not. Um, I'll, I'll give you two or three of them. Uh, one is the new urbanist. I don't know if you're familiar with the new urban movement. Um, if you guys have been, if any of your listeners have been to Seaside, Florida or 30A, there's Alice Beach and Rosemary Beach and those places down there. The new urbanists basically looked at, you know, the problem with building from a planning perspective. And they looked at historic neighborhoods and they said, you know, it used to be that you didn't require a car to drive everywhere. You know, today you have, I got to drive my kids to school. I got to go to the shopping malls. I got to go, you know, to the industrial complex. I got to drive, you know. And, and to my to you know my gated community, and so you had to have a car to get there. And they're like, that's not the way it used to be. It used to be that your store was in walking distance, your school was in walking distance, your church was in walking distance. People didn't have all the rich houses behind a wall, right? You know, the 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 helper, a college student, lived in the back house, and so you had a real mix of different things happening in your in your neighborhoods and cities were planned differently and so they have approached the neighborhood as a as a place that they want it walkable and you'll hear that walkable cities you'll there's a bunch of books on this walkable idea if you go to europe right if you go to these mackinac island was an example in michigan if you go to these places that 
people park the car and they walk and they bike and they, and they live in these communities without ever getting in the car, it can be, you know, life changing. And so when they developed Seaside Florida in like 1980s, it started a thing called a TND, a traditional neighborhood development. And traditional neighborhood developments are developments going up and they're, they're going up around the country. They're, you know, developers have picked up on it and they do it in a cheaper way, but it's still front porches, sidewalks. You'll notice if you go through neighborhoods in the 70s or 80s or 90s, there's no sidewalks, right? They, they, it, it was too expensive and people don't walk anymore, right? I mean, think about that. People don't walk anymore, mm -hmm. right? You don't have sidewalks. And so one one really p positive thing is the uh, new urbanists and the traditional neighborhood developments. It is uh, rethinking the way we're designing our cities so there's not so much sprawl, so that it's walkable. That's a real positive thing. The other one would be classicism, okay? And I belong to a group called the ICAA, which is the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. It started, a friend of mine was the first executive director in 1990, Christine Frank. Um, you know, it was in a, you know, uh, uh, I think she said it was in an office on an NYU campus or something. It was very small, very humble beginnings. Now there's, you know, 15 chapters around the country. There's, you know, five or 6,000 members that, that are part of this community. And basically it is reinstilling, okay, uh, a human scale back into building. And, you know, where I learned about classical architecture and art and the height of a pedestal in a room and how much crown moldings are appropriate and the right size of a door casing all come from this classical training. Now, this is stuff that used to be trained, you know, 100 years ago. I give the example that, are you familiar with Audell's uh, carpentry? The 1926 Audell's carpentry is like this big, it's like four, uh, four volumes. Kind of, it was designed to fit in your carpentry box and it's basically a how-to manuals for carpenter, how to sharpen your saw, how to, uh, you know, lay out a wall, all these different things. One of the things, they had a design section. And in that design section, they have uh, a column and a base and all the parts broken out. I mean, you wouldn't find that in architectural classes in some of these colleges today. And so there was a common language that was being spoken uh, in the 20s, right, that isn't spoken. The homeowners understood it. The builders understood it. The craftsmen understood it. The architects certainly understood it. And so they are reinstilling a lot of those classical ideas to building, and I think it is improving things. And I think you are seeing better development. So, you know, <laughs> I sounded pretty pessimistic earlier. I think the, the low point in kind of residential design probably was that 70, 80s era, and we're, things are getting better. So I am actually positive about that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the, the majority of things aren't that way, but they're getting better. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one of the benefits is something like this, where we have much more access to, you know, a podcast or like some of the things that you're doing on YouTube and uh, being able to see and be connected with other people who are thinking like this. So how can people who are listening to this, who are unfamiliar with you, get in touch with some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, so the things I'm reading, the things I'm doing, I, you know, I, the, the whole classical stuff that I've, you know, kind of uh, gravitated to, uh, there are uh, chapters around the country. There's a Texas chapter, a California chapter, there's a Midwest chapter. Um, and so uh, those classical ideas, they have classes. You can go onto their website and listen to these incredible talks. They have, uh, 
you can go to New York and learn all about the architectural orders, all about molding sizes. And so there's excellent training there. I'm trying to communicate a lot of that, those ideals about history and design on my YouTube page, uh, youtube.com slash Brent Hull, I think it is. And so um, I'm taking little things like I did the shoe mold. Hey, guys, let's try not to use the shoe mold, right? Um, there's I, one of the studies I was doing was stairs. And when I looked at historically what was in the catalog, I realized that our catalogs for stairs today look almost exactly to this catalog stairs from the 1940s. So for 80 years, we've been building the same dang stair. And so the same dang parts and, you know, it's all screwed together now. There's no craftsmanship there. And so, you know, it's time to kind of up our game that look, guys, we've been doing this for too long. Let's kind of, you know, breathe some life into this stuff. And so, uh, and there are other guys out there like me who are trying to improve quality and so improve design. My whole deal is that because I went to North Ministry is that history piece. And uh, you're on Instagram as well too, right? Yeah, Hull Millwork Hull Homes is my two businesses. Hull Millwork underscore Hull Homes. Uh, you can find it there. We also, I've been reminded, uh, just came out with a 100-year window. Uh, basically what we did was our restoration company has been you know, going to courthouse and restoring these windows that are 100, 120 years old and getting them working again, good as new, last another 100 years. And yet on the building side, we were putting in production windows and literally in 10 or 15 years, our clients were calling saying, our windows are rotted. We're like, now this is crazy. We're having to replace these windows. And if we just built them like they used to be built, we could have a window that lasts 100 years. So we are using Sapili. We only use single pane glass. <laughs> Insulated glass is a joke. And so it lasts 10 to 15 years before it fogs up. How can I build a 100-year window if I have the glass that won't last 100 years? So uh, we have another glass for cold weather climates that's called a Pilkington Spatia glass, uh, which is a vacuum sealed, very different. Um, and so we have a window that we believe will last 100 years. We call it a 100-year window. We're really only for the traditional markets, double hung encasements. Um, but we're really excited about that because we think it represents, you know, the way we should be building today. All right, that's pretty cool. I know one of the things we've been talking about on the show here on and off is kind of how woodworking fits into being a homeowner and working on our houses and all that. So I really appreciate you coming on, Brent. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll have the links to Brent's YouTube channel and his Instagram account and some of the other things he's been talking about on our show notes page. You can find that at woodsmith.com slash podcasts. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks that you want to share about today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can send those to us via email, woodsmith at woodsmith.com, or you can leave them on the YouTube channel where you can leave them in the comments section there. Otherwise, uh, thanks again for listening to the Shop Notes podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Woodcraft Supply. Since 1928, Woodcraft has been providing woodworkers with the best tools and supplies. To get a free catalog, visit woodcraft.com slash shopnotes or visit one of their 75 stores nationwide. Woodcraft, helping you make wood work. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week for the Shop Notes podcast. Bye. <laughs>